Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Welcome. We are doing the Psalms on Wednesdays here at CCF. And uh, we are also in the middle of Psalms. We're going to have some testimonies. We heard the first one from Isaiah on Sunday. It was awesome. Is Isaiah here? Not here. Coward. I sat through your Psalm 139 talk. Just kidding. So Isaiah's Psalm 139 talk was awesome. Um, we talked about it as a family on our drive home for quite a while. It was really good. My kids were all extolling how awesome Isaiah was. They're like, Dad, he just, you know, he just like spoke from the heart and he wasn't like trying to sound wise. Not that that's like better. It's just, just different. (laughs) (laughs) So here I am going to do my best to try to sound wise on Psalm 139, which I'll be talking about four times this semester. This is the first time. Uh, And if you missed it, in the intro to the Psalms the other week, uh, I talked a little bit about my thought behind this. Uh, I love Psalm 139, and I've also had this possible thing in mind for a few years, and I decided to dovetail them together. This is what I said. I said, the project is this. Come up with a series of talks that might be specific, specifically appealing to people who don't believe what I believe. Call them non-Christians, call them wandering souls, call them atheists, although I think relatively few people are really truly athe- atheists and more are better uh, described as agnostics. Frederick Buechner, quote him anytime I can, said this, an agnostic is somebody who doesn't know for sure whether there really is a God. That is, some people all of the time, and all people some of the time. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm still going to be talking to pretty much everyone, but specifically to that part and everyone that wonders about and needs to hear again the whole story of what it means to be a human living in a universe created by a God, specifically the God that the Bible speaks of. So with that, we turn to this Rabbi Akiva takes a left turn, or we live by stories, or myths and commercials fundamentally doing the same thing, commercials are just less honest about it, or Psalm 139, take one. Once upon a time, there was a rabbi named Akiva, and he was very thoughtful and devoted to God, and every morning and every evening, Rabbi Akiva would take a walk on the trails through the woods near his home, meditating on the scriptures and praying as he went. And one day, around sunset, he was walking and he was wrestling over a particularly difficult passage that he had read that morning. And with a furrowed brow and just lost in deep concentration, he unknowingly turned left at a fork in the trail where he usually turned right, where he always turned right. And before long, A blinding light blazed down from above, and a booming voice from high up said, Who are you, and what are you doing here? Akiva stood stunned. The rabbi had accidentally stumbled upon the gate of a fortress, and the soldier, keeping watch up in the guard tower, addressed him again through his megaphone, Who are you, and what are you doing here? The rabbi thought for a second, 
And then he looked up with a smirk on his face, and he said, How much do they pay you to stand up there and ask those questions? What? The rabbi repeated himself. How much do they pay you to stand up there and ask those questions? $500 a week. Akiva replied, Quit your job. Come with me, and I will pay you twice as much to stand outside my window and ask me those same questions every morning at my waking. Who are you? What are you doing here? I turned 39 last week, almost as old as Lawson's dad, and I don't know if I had much of a real answer for either of those questions until I was like close to 30. Uh, My 20s were just such a time of constant change that I'm not sure that I could have had an answer for them. There was moving away to college, something that you all have experienced, which to me was kind of like being born. Like you enter a strange world outside the comfort of the only one that you have known. You realize maybe you've been in the dark about some things. And then you've got to just get on and find a way, sometimes kicking and screaming, naked and afraid, in need of being cuddled, etc. Then there was the getting married, for me, while still in college. Then figuring out work after, which meant figuring out money, and then children, and then a house, all of that in my 20s. And really, those are just like dots on the timeline. Those are just big things that happened. A lot was changing. But beyond the dots, there was also, for me, just the continual examination and re-examination of much of what I had been taught about myself, about God, and the world. And having done that... Much, I can say that there really is something kind of scary if you let yourself go there. Because, well, if this one thing that I always thought turns out not to be the case, what else? Some people in here, you know what I'm talking about? Like people who, Christian people, regarding the Bible, like if this teaching in the Bible about like women's hair, say, is actually only relevant for that ancient culture, then what else in the Bible only applies to that culture? Or if this story in the Bible isn't historical, Job maybe, did anything in the Bible happen as it says it did? Does it matter? It can feel like the sinkhole is like opening up underneath your feet. And it's not just us Christian people who like believe in God, who have to deal with this, who have to face this kind of dread. All of us growing up look at things a certain way, and then things happen to us, they happen around us, and they make us question what we thought we knew. Like, even if you don't believe in God, there is still plenty to be unsure about. Like, if there's no cause or purpose behind anything, then why do tragic stories in the news make me feel not just that someone has been wronged, but that something much bigger and larger has been violated that involves all of us. Like that at some deep level, why do I feel that things aren't as they should be? And why do I feel like there's a way that things should be at all? These questions that prod and shift and change, they can feel like a threat or they can feel like an invitation, depending on a lot of things. I think of them like a door uh, and it's a door that opens up to each of us at some point. Will we have the courage 
to walk through. And like God knows, it's scary, like I said, and sometimes it's all you can do to like stay alive and keep your anxiety in check. To, and so you don't walk through, and I get it. And that can be a good way of, you know, kind of keeping yourself alive, but it's not a very good way of growing into the full measure of who we can be. So these sermons from Psalm 139, uh, they're like an invitation for all of us to walk through. Some of us, we spend a good deal of our lives not really caring too much about the questions about God or the world. Like we just throw up our hands and we say, ah, I got enough to worry about down here, and then we go to bed. I admire those people. That is not me. Uh, Some of us, when it comes to those questions, we convince ourselves that no, what we know is exactly the truth, and then we kind of frame life as a sort of war where everybody is who doesn't believe what we believe, they're trying to like attack and destroy us, and when doubts arise beyond our control, because they definitely do, the doubts come, the questions come, we've developed pretty good tools for squashing them down and ignoring them. It's called fundamentalism. Some of us take the route of declaring that we've looked at all the evidence and that we have absolutely no proof for God, whatever we've already decided God must be. So all we can believe in is nothing beyond what our eyes and our instruments can show us. This is also called fundamentalism. Let me pause for a moment here to say again, I have no proof about anything. I have no proof. How could I? Of course, there's not, there's not proof. There's no like physical evidence for God, among many other things. And I don't even, I mean, you ask me, I don't even think there is like the final logical argument that can finally improve, finally and fully prove anything about God, like in any scientific sense. To me, uh, belief or faith, if you like that word, is really an act of interpretation. Events, think about it. Events happen to us, they happen around us all the time. Somebody writes you an encouraging message or a discouraging one. Certain person gets elected president or doesn't. Your parents get divorced or maybe they stay married for 75 years. A friend loses a child or a job. Another friend gets a seven-figure paycheck. Someone cuts you off in traffic. A snow day happens at school because you put a spoon under your pillow and wore your PJs inside out. A riot happens in D.C. You eat a pizza with sardines and mustard on a beach in Spain with your friends. A black hole opens up in the galaxy next door. A sunset stops you in your tracks on your way down normal street. All of these things happen. And what we make of any of this, how we choose to interpret it or perceive it, perceive it is faith. Barbara Brown Taylor, she said this. She said, when all is said and done, faith may be nothing more than the assignment of holy meaning to events that others call random. Not very good for proof. Sorry. I'm getting a little ahead of myself with the faith talk, though, so I'm going to stop. And we're going to return to this more another time with Psalm 139. Tonight, here's where I want to focus. While we may not believe in anything... When it comes to God, I think we can't believe in nothing when it comes to ourselves. There's no such thing as being an atheist about your own self, not just about whether you exist or not, of course, but I mean like regarding who you are deep down and what the purpose of your life is, because we have all been told something. We've all been told something about ourselves that we have believed and that deeply shapes 
who we think we are and what we're doing here. And we may be aware of it to different extents. Therapy can be really good for this. Uh, but we all have a story that we live by. There are voices everywhere, all the time, telling us these stories. Parents, teachers, pastors, coaches, friends, exes. We hear them uh, not just from voices we know, but from voices that are nameless and faceless. Politics, arts, sciences, marketing. Sometimes the story is told to you very directly. You are blank. Sometimes it kind of seeps in, indirectly, below the surface. Here are some stories that I can think of. The story of achievement, in which your life must be made to count by realizing your potential through hard work and discipline. Advance a career, participate in society, have a family, succeed in the marketplace, engage in the political process, pursue cultural enrichment, compete in sports, earn a reputation. There's the story of danger in which you are constantly at risk and life's biggest pursuit is for safety and security against all possible threats. Don't get caught without insurance in case you get sick. Store away savings in case the economy tanks. Buy expensive car seats for your baby in case you get in a wreck. Avoid unknown and therefore dangerous people and situations. This is a narrative some of us live by. There's the story of ideologies in which you see yourself as called and set apart for truth in a twisted and demented world. Don't allow yourself to be corrupted or deceived. Follow the party rules, speak the party lines, think the party ideas, remain pure, oppose enemies of what is good and true. This happens on the right and the left. Uh, there's the story of insignificance, in which you are the random product of a thousand, thousand mechanical processes, chemical reactions, mindless events, and chance outcomes. And life isn't really about anything at all. But if you want, you can fool yourself. Your experience in this story amounts to really nothing more than just being kind of a ghost in a machine. But like to defiantly accept your insignificance sets you apart from all the other delusional cowards. There's the story of shame in which you are an irredeemable screw up. In and of yourself, you are nothing. You deserve nothing. There are elements of some twisted Christian stories that actually sound like this. You are a piece of garbage in the sight of God. Good thing Jesus stands there and is like, hey, it's me. You are a burden to those around you, and if, you, uh, if, they, if they haven't said that to you, it's only because they're being nice, and nothing that you do will ever uh, be anything that anybody is going to care about. That's a story some of you live by. Uh, there's also the story of, I'll just call it the story of you, in which you are a sovereign and individual self, a law unto yourself. You are here to make yourself free from the strictures of traditions and boldly going against the small thinking of like your parents and people on the wrong side of history. 
and your own choice and your own will are the most valuable things in the universe and life's highest priority is for you to be able to exercise your choice and your will unhindered. You are free to pursue and acquire whatever you want so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Those are just some stories. That's not all the stories. Those are the ones that I could think of. And it's not that there's nothing to commend in these stories. Hard work, that's a perfectly good thing. And there is such a thing as goodness and truth, which means that there's such a thing as badness and lies. And yes, I think we ought to be on the side of goodness and truth. And also planning for an uncertain and potentially dangerous future, that can be a wise thing to do. And when it comes to like pursuing pleasure, life would be lame without pleasure. And yes, it is best to pursue pleasures that don't harm others. And with the story of shame, while I don't advocate for shame in the least, uh, it is good to acknowledge that there are uglier sides of us. And even with the story of insignificance, that you are just kind of a cosmic accident, uh, I, I mean, it may not be fun to consider, but I'm all for the sober realization uh, that someday we're all going to die. And it's not going to be more than a couple of generations before nobody even remembers you existed. That's, going, that's the truth for every person in this room. How many of your great, 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 great grandparents can you name? I bet none. They were people who lived. So, there are kernels of truth in these stories, but what I want to pay attention to, if it's a story that you live by, is what happens to us when we make them the underlying or overarching stories of our lives. Like, how is that working out for us? Because where I see that those stories end when you live by them is in shame because you failed or in despair because nothing means anything, or in just constantly having to justify yourself because of what you had to do in order to succeed, or condemning somebody else because they were on the wrong side. And also, just for me, this is maybe more personal, but I just see that these stories fail to account for the most meaningful moments of my own life, like moments of grace, moments of joy, real deep joy, moments of beauty, moments where something deep inside me like lights up and what I feel like I have to say is thank you. Moments of grief and deep sadness, like I said before, not just because things didn't go my way, but because it feels somewhere deep down like things are not as they should be. So here is one more story about you that I would like to put forward for your consideration as a story that you might believe and live by. From Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The story is this. You are created. Not randomly, 
not haphazardly, not created in a way that is lacking something. You are created. Fearfully and wonderfully, as the psalmist says here, wonderful are your works, he says of God. And of course, that includes you. And it's funny, like I always had the hardest time believing this about myself. And then I had kids, and I could never imagine thinking anything less about my own children. And not created in like some cold assembly line industrial revolution kind of way, like not uh, fearfully and wonderfully manufactured, formed, knitted, intricately woven. Have you ever knit something? Have you ever made or formed anything by hand? Intricately, as it says here, with full attention to every detail and your energy focused on making it just so. Could be a quilt, could be a movie, could be a story, a painting, a joke. How did you feel about the thing you were making? Because here is the other essential part of the story that I want to tell. And I think it is the most essential part in my mind. You are created and you are deeply known. Nothing hidden, the psalm says, as God made you in secret. And also, you are absolutely beloved. You are the beloved of God. That is the story. In fact, it is the only story that I know how to live by that makes any sense of anything. You are the beloved of God. And I know, like, whoever uses that word for anything, like, who says beloved? It's this stupid, old, like, Shakespeare, flowery, romantic word. But I I actually like it, and I think we need it because I think its rarity gives it some punch even makes it sound a little strange. Like lots of things are loved. Chocolate, coffee, the Chiefs, these shoes. My best man got me for my birthday. I've wanted these shoes since I was 11 years old. I love these shoes. But what does it mean to say something is truly beloved? Like loved all the way down to the core, full stop, no condition, beloved. And it feels hard to believe. And I wonder who here is actually like internally bristling. Like, yeah, whatever. Because it's that stuff also about being completely known that enters into the psalm. And I think a lot of us maybe feel a need to kind of strike a sort of internal deal, like we can be known or we can be loved, but not both. Because, you know, being fully known and fully loved feels a little impossible because it's like, well, if they, if they knew, like read if you knew. And yet this is what the Christian tradition has been saying for the last few thousand years and the Jewish tradition before that. God created you. He knows you. You are his beloved. And that's not something that like, I mean, it's just, it sounds trite when you say it, right? But when you have an experience of belovedness, like all the way to your core, it will change you. 
And then the other stories, they start to creep into the mind along with the story, and they kind of start melding together, and we start to hear conditions being put on things about this whole business of being loved. Like, yes, beloved, once you fulfilled your potential. Yes, beloved, still plenty of danger to worry about. Yes, beloved, once you come to an understanding of the truth or you believe a certain thing, then you'll be beloved. Yes, beloved, but you don't really need that from anybody because you can get it for yourself. The Christian story that some people tell puts conditions on it. Yes, beloved, but only because God looks at you and sees Jesus. When he looks at you and sees you, you disgust him. Yes, beloved, but only because Jesus suffers God's wrath that God wanted to pour out on you because what God naturally feels toward you is hatred. Yes, beloved, but remember, you were made in sin and you are rotten to the core. And like with our other stories, like there are kernels of truth in there, but none of them is the truth. So let's wrap up our wondering about who we are and what we're doing here by going back to the beginning. Are you familiar with the story of the Garden of Eden? This is yes, this is no. You're familiar. Usually when Christians tell you this story about what it means to be a human, they start with Adam and Eve. And I'm guessing if you've heard it, you think something along the lines of, God made a perfect world, but then Adam and Eve rebelled and wrecked it all, and now everybody is cursed. Which is problematic because that's not how the Bible actually starts. And it's problematic because it doesn't recognize that this story, uh, it, it wasn't created in a vacuum. Like this story about who we are and what we're doing here was not the only story being told about who we are and what we're doing here. Because people have always been asking these questions of who we are and what we're doing here. And they have always been telling stories to answer them. Genesis is one answer. But the neighbors of the people who created Genesis all that time ago, they had their own stories, their own answers. Babylonians, Assyrians, please don't get bored. I know it sounds historical, but I promise it matters. It's no different from what, I've, what I talked about at the beginning, what we're, what we're still doing now, telling stories. It's just that the form has changed. Like before, they told myths to make sense of what it meant to be a person, and now we have commercials and political speeches and friends telling you who you are and what you're doing them here. And I think you get the most mileage out of the Genesis story when you understand how it relates to the other stories coming around it. Because Eden, the Garden of Eden, it's not the only paradise garden. It's like a, you know, it's a garden of paradise, perfection, so we call it. It's not the only paradise garden story that was like playing at the theater. They didn't have movie theaters, but just go with me. There were other stories about gardens, and in those stories, you want to know what the garden is? The garden is like a country club for the gods. They go there, they kick their feet up, gods only, humans not wanted. There is like a wall, and that keeps all of you stupid, idiot, speck humans out. Well, you can come in. You can be a slave. The god might bring you in as a slave to just kind of like, you know, serve whatever the god's whim was, whatever the god fancies. So when that is in the air, and then you read in Genesis that God placed the people in the midst of the garden, 
This isn't about geographical space, folks. It's about who we are and what we're doing here. And far from being an annoyance to be kept out by some security fence, in Genesis, people, you are desired and you are brought near from the very beginning. From the very beginning. And far from being slaves, like in the other stories, it says people are, this is like a really Bible-y word, but they're given dominion. Which just means that God makes, he, he makes you a partner. And again, this is fundamentally about who, what it means to be a person. God shares his power, shares his authority. Why? Because he trusts us and he loves us. He doesn't detest us. This is where the story of the Bible starts. And you're like, read, wait, hold on, question. What do you mean we? Because isn't this about Adam and Eve? Like the first two humans? Because that was just for them. And then the rest of us, we're just screwed. Does this, this doesn't even apply to us. Okay, let me say, I'm glad you asked. And my answer to your question is a question. Did you know that the Bible was not originally written in English. Do you know that, Josh? Now you do. You're educated. It was, well, originally it wasn't even written at all. In Hebrew. And do you know the Hebrew word for human? Who said it? Some smart person way back there. What'd you say? Adam. You know how you spell Adam? A-D-A-M. We transliterated it into English and realized it sounded a lot like an English name that we already knew. So we went with it. When we hear Adam, we should be thinking less about that one guy way back then and more about what it means to be a human, all of us. Because that's the thing with these stories, man. The Genesis stories, the other stories, the freaking commercials. It's not just that they happened, it's that they happen. They are about what it means to be a created human. Are we wanted? Are we, are we an unfortunate byproduct to be dealt with? What do you think about your life? Are you wanted or are you an unfortunate byproduct? Are you given dignity freely? Or do you have to rake and claw and win your way to it? Israel's neighbors... Those other guys, the Babylonians, they, they, they painted a picture of a world in which, like, struggle was just built into the fabric of things. Because their creation stories, they're pretty gnarly. They're, like, riddled with God corpses and blood. One of their creation story, you know how it goes? They've got this god named Marduk. And he murders his rival, whose name is Tiamat. And you know how heaven and earth get made in their story? Marduk takes Tiamat's corpse and rips it in half. And the torso becomes the heavens. The legs become the earth. Remember, and you're like, oh, well, we know that's not how it came about because like the Big Bang, right? Okay. <laughs> these are not, these are ways of understanding what is deeply true about the world. Because in their mind, these stories reflect 
a belief that like violence and competition and power struggles are right at home in this world. That's just the way of things and there's not much reason to hope for anything else. But you read the Genesis story and it is drastically different because the God of Genesis, there's just, there's just the one. And there's no one to contend. Like the Bible doesn't start, like a lot of these other stories start with like this epic Lord of the Rings cosmic war. Here, God is just a given from the beginning, uncontested. He doesn't have to win the right to create anything. He creates simply, apparently, because he wants to from a place of complete peace and control. And hear me, this is about your life. He creates you because he wants to. There is no compulsion. There is no coercion. You are here. Do you think about that ever? That you are here? That you exist? When you could not, but you do? Sorry, this is like a 3 a.m. conversation, spring break. Catch me, catch me there. Is life, your life, fundamentally good? Does it want to be at peace? Or are strife and struggle and chaos just, is that the way of your life? The stories that we tell and the stories that we listen to shape what we believe at a deep level, so we should be careful about the voices that we are listening to. Last thing. In the Babylonian story, after Marduk <coughs> won the cosmic battle and tore Tiamat in two to create heaven and earth, after you get heaven and earth, obviously it's time to create humans. You know how it says Marduk did it? He hunted down all of Tiamat's henchmen gods, and he slayed them too, one by one, just to make sure that they really knew who was the guy. And as their blood flowed, Marduk bent and took the blood of his enemies and mixed it with the dust of the earth, and he created living beings. Does this sound like a story you've heard before? It does. Do you know which one? Which one? Which one, Robert? Genesis. It sounds like the Genesis story. When we get to the creation of Adam, the human, you, in Genesis 2, do you remember how it says that God did it? The Lord God formed the human, from the dust of the ground and he, not the dust of the ground and the blood of his enemies, breathed into it the breath of his own life. And the man became a living being. Fearfully and wonderfully made, no? Side note, I felt this way the first time I saw uh, a, son a sonogram photo of my beautiful 12-year-old, now 12-year-old boy, Briggs. Uh, I was just shimmering on that screen like the freaking Milky Way. Like you see a sonogram and a baby looks like the Milky Way. And like God kneels into the dust of like DNA and mitosis and all of that and he breathes into it his breath and the boy becomes a living being. That's you. And you. 
You see it now about these stories? This isn't just some like weird biophysics account of like how the first human's body was constituted because he couldn't logically have had a mom. Like we're not trying to discern the like O2 God divine O2 to like dust soil ratio. This is a story answering a question, who are you and what are you doing here? And again, I'm sorry if I'm boring you with Babylon and Assyria and whatever, but do you see how the questions that matter to us are the same questions that mattered to them? Are we fundamentally at odds with God? Do we have our beginnings as his enemies? Are you worthless? Are you unwanted? Are you forced to fight and earn your way to some kind of glory? Are you nothing at all? Or are you fundamentally created, good, beloved, breathed into, of God's very self? You should think about these questions. Because we're all believing a story about who we are and what we're doing here. Maybe it's from Marduk. Maybe it's from TikTok. The story of the scriptures is just that. You're created freely and known fully and absolutely beloved full stop. No conditions. Nothing else needs to be added. There's plenty to say about how things go wrong. Because, yes, there, there is that sneaking suspicion that I have, and I think we all have, that, man, things aren't really as they should be a lot of the time. And that that suspicion is, like, not really going away. So we'll, we'll get there. But let's start at the beginning. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, dust and breath. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Let's pray. My soul knows it full well, Lord, uh, and there are lots of times where that may be the only part of me that knows it full well, and I know I can do a pretty good job of convincing myself that I don't know that. I believe, God, that the resounding bass note of creation is Belovedness. Now, when you stoop 
to breathe your very life into the dust. You are doing that in all of our lives. Everyone is created out of your own self, known, beloved. And I just hope that we can realize that sooner than later. Amen.